Welcome to the Crypto Assets and Blockchain Podcast. Nathan, Nathan, from Mindspire. Uh, I met Nathan last year on the Blockchain Expo in Berlin, and I'm really happy that we stay in touch for such a long time and we have him on our stage. So give Nathan a warm welcome, and I hand over the microphone. Warm welcome. Thank you. Uh, hi, everyone. So just so I get a sense of who's in the crowd, how many here consider themselves blockchain beginners? Sort of new at blockchain. A few people. How many consider yourselves more blockchain intermediates? They know a fair bit, but how many are like more experts, like you've developed or... Okay, so we've got a really mi uh, real mixed crowd here. What I am going to go over is the raw materials industry, because... Uh, essentially, this is where my projects are, are focused. I've been doing a lot of talking about different ways that blockchain will impact raw materials industry with people in the scene. I'm working on my own project that I'll tell you a little bit about. Uh, but really, this is going to be more of a high-level overview because I look at the raw materials industry as uh, the primary sector as an area where It's very open to disruption, but it's also sort of a closed circle. A lot of people sort of stay within it. And they aren't, they know blockchain exists, but they're not quite prepared for it. So when we think of the raw materials industry, we're thinking extractives. We're thinking things like oil, gold, silica, but also chemicals. We're also thinking harvesting, things such as uh, lumber, primary materials. And What characteristics might come to mind for you if you think of, what words might come to mind if you think of uh, these industries? Uh, anyone? Dirty. What, what? Hmm? Dirty. Dirty. Intransparent. Intransparent. Any, anyone else? A word that comes to mind when you think raw materials industry? Fraud. 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 Okay. Anyone else? I was brainstorming earlier, and I came up with the, uh, the following uh, sort of characteristics. You've got a high cost of entry. You've got low margins. You know, people are usually have very low margins in these industries. Lots of middlemen. Slow moving is uh, something that came to mind. Corruption, fraud, as the other person said. Uh, opaque supply chain, vulnerability to bad actors. And so what I was thinking is, how are, what are some different ways that we can look at and address some of, these, uh, some of these different characteristics? And I'm, these are just sort of high-level brainstorms. So the first one is high entry costs. So for example, I was talking in the mining sector. I was uh, down at, uh, at a mining conference recently talking with a number of junior mines. Now, for those of you who don't know, junior mines are mining projects where they've done uh, setup, they've, uh, they've done uh, due diligence, they've said, okay, there are, we know there are materials in the ground, we know more or less how many there are, and then they're trying to raise the money to extract them. And they have to raise something like $100 or $200 million dollars often. Like, so there's a high cost of entry uh, for a lot of these minerals. So what are some just easy things that you can do with blockchain to disrupt that sector? And one might be just forward selling the production. So if we know how much material is in there, then we can sell it beforehand using tokens, have people trade the tokens, what have you, and then use the money that we make in order to sell that. You can also do something similar with an equity or a revenue share token. 
So, and I believe that there was one started in Gibraltar for microfinancing smaller mines going on in Africa. I've forgotten the name. I was trying to look it up this morning, but uh, I didn't quite get there. But when you're talking about high entry costs, this is a big barrier to entry in a lot of uh, in a lot of extractive industries and a lot of resource harvesting industries because you've got a supply chains to build. Sometimes you have roads to build into the area. You need to hire people. You need to do surveys, uh, uh, cost estimations. It's a long, slow, expensive process. So this is where efficiency can come in. Now, what about the area of low margins or middlemen? So, essentially, if you've got a lot of people sort of in the middle, each taking a cut, and if you've got uh, uh, very sort of razor-thin margins, so you're making like maybe a couple of percent on uh, every ton of material that you're sourcing, then there's a lot of room here for blockchain to come in with efficiency gains. Anyone who comes in with... uh, essentially uh, an edge in the margins is going to have a huge advantage. Two or three percent savings is going to be an enormous advantage in an area where two or three percent is your whole profit margin, right? So first one I want to talk about is bridge financing with crypto loans. So this is something I came across talking with uh, a couple of other projects that are already running. I uh, in my spare time, one of the things that I do is I run a podcast, and the reason I run this podcast is to partly to meet all of the different people that are in the crypto scene and interview them and get a better sense for who is out there. One of them was, uh, was an interesting company called Sweetbridge, and that's exactly what they're doing. So essentially what they're saying is that if I'm selling you a ton of rice or a ton of coal or something like that, most times in the industry, the, purchase, uh, the purchaser will buy it and then say, well, give me six months to pay. So who's essentially financing this operation? The supplier. And that's really uh, putting the uh, burden, the cost burden, on the supplier and making it uh, so that only really big companies can afford to operate in the space or well-financed ones. So what these guys are doing, for example, is they say, well, if you've got, say, 10,000 bitcoins, you can take out a loan against those bitcoins, finance and settle immediately. And then the people down the supply chain can finance and settle immediately afterwards, and so on and so on and on. Eliminating six months' worth of financing uh, uh, time and eliminating, essentially, a number of contracting brokerage middlemen. So this is something that would give people a long way. I'm going to have to speed up here. Uh, Contract efficiency. So... Basically, anytime you have lawyers involved, contracts, you can get yourself some edges. And the thing is, in the raw materials industry, they're still using paper for a lot of their records in many of these, uh, many of the countries they operate in, and many of the uh, many of the companies. And so, leapfrogging over uh, over technology and adopting something where you're able to eliminate uh, eliminate contract times. Uh, that sort of thing is going to provide a big advantage. And then, of course, permits and licenses, brokerages, anything dealing with government, uh, there's a lot of room for efficiency there. Now, we talked about corruption and opacity. Uh, This gentleman mentioned fraud. So this is the area that I'm working in, is supply chain and traceability solutions, uh, as well as incentives. Incentives are big in the raw materials industry because we have the ability to incentivize good behavior. So I want to go through just a couple of concrete examples. This is obviously not exhaustive, but it's to sort of get our minds going as to what what approaches we can take with some of these uh, players in the industry.
So I want to start with traceability of unique goods. And this is where most people would have heard of a couple of companies already. Everledger has made news about uh, blood diamond tracking. There's an, another company called Provenance that's done uh, pilot cases with fish. Uh, the idea essentially is using ID tags, you're creating a digital twin, and the digital twin is just sold up the supply chain along with the actual physical good. And as, as long as the twin has value, as long as people actually want to be able to go back to that digital twin and say, okay, well, uh, we, uh, we, we need to know where this came from, then it does limit the value of the untagged items. So <clears throat> if you've got an untagged diamond, untagged fish, uh, if people are actually looking for it, then uh, it makes it harder to sort of break into this, uh, this cryptographically secured system. So this is sort of the, the beginner's entry phase into traceability, because these things are uniquely identifiable. You can take photos of them. You can engrave them and eliminate fraud that way. Now, second area that I've talked to a couple of big companies about is waste management. <clears throat> now, we most, most normally think of waste as just you know garbage that you throw in the garbage can, uh, throw it in the dump. But industrial waste is often a raw material and an input for other processes. So if you've extracted uh, one material from an ore, the waste product might be the input for something else. Uh, often cobalt is, uh, is found in the same ore as copper, for example, and so you may want to reprocess some of this stuff afterwards. The difficulty is that some of the processing centers are going to be in other countries, especially if you're dealing with traveling across places like you know, Africa, where six African countries get in the way, and to transport waste across these areas requires companies to sign off. It requires permits. And this can take weeks, especially in areas where they're still using paper. So what if you had a decentralized contract system with digital signing? We want to send a truckload of uh, gold ore where the extraction's been done to be reprocessed to extract even more. OK, well, what we're going to do is uh, we, put up, we put up the request, and all of the government officials see it. They sign off. You, have, you can have the, uh, the permission and send your shipment within a day instead of within weeks. Seems fairly, fairly obvious, except for the fact that it's not. <laughs> That's the thing about, uh, about these things. Getting the buy-in from all of the different players is the difficult part. I want to talk about one thing that I've heard multiple times and talked about with many different industry partners. <coughs> Stores of value. Now, when we're talking disruption, everything we've talked about so far is talk about uh, changing a process in an existing raw material sourcing industry, getting an extra 1-2%, uh, and really getting an edge over everyone else with efficiency. But this is an interesting use case. I've talked to small gold companies about it, and I've talked to big gold companies about it. I'm convinced someone is going to do it. <clears throat> the question is who? So, you've got a $24 trillion gold industry, 95% of it is paper trades, 5% of it is actual physical gold. The vast majority is not used in products, it's used as a store of value. You refine it, you take it out of the ground, you refine it, make it shiny, and you put it back in the ground, in an underground vault, and then you trade paper. Why not just tokenize it while it's still in the ground? Makes sense. You prove how much is in the ground, make a bunch of tokens, and forward sell all of the tokens and people exchange them. Why does the gold have to be refined? 
Now, the only problem with this is that that makes, okay, well, first of all, let's talk about why it's a good idea. First of all, you don't have the environmental impact. It's a lot easier to get the, it's a lot easier to prove the ground resources than it is to dig it up. It overcomes the, uh, the issue of uh, the high startup cost of a couple hundred million dollars of, uh, of actually building the mine. The only problem is, if everyone does it, you crash the gold industry because you flood the market. <laughs> so this is, this is still a, an ongoing debate among the big companies. This is sort of an open secret that they're looking at how they could do this because there are big gold companies that could dump 60 million ounces in the market tomorrow if, uh, if they started doing this. But then how is gold as a store of value? So this is an area ripe for disrupt disruption, and it hasn't been solved yet. But I'm sure we are going to see people attempt it in the future. This is my project that I'm working on. So traceability of fungible goods. So we talked about traceability of uniquely identifiable items, but what about non-uniquely identifiable? How can you manage electricity, metals, oil, chemicals? Uh, the problem is that the shipments can be mixed together. So option one is make them unique. Option two is uh, basically not care if they're unique or not. And uh, I think in most cases, we're going to be using a combination of the two. So how can you make fungible goods unique? Well, you can put them in containers and put a little tag on them and scan the tag of the person that, mi uh, that mined the metals or that uh, harvested the palm oil or, uh, or, or, brewed the, or gathered the raw materials for the chemicals and take, the, and take that shipment to the processing plant. That's good for uh, as long as it's just being traded. But at, the problem is at points of transformation, at some point you've got to open the bag, you've got to open the barrel, you've got to dump it out, and you've got to process it. And unless you have two separate production lines, then there's going to be mixing between the, uh, between the blockchain sourced responsible goods and the non-blockchain goods, which may or may not be responsible. Theoretically, they're all responsible, right? But, and maybe even they're doing due diligence, but if it's all on paper, you still got to keep it separate for the blockchain system to have any value. So what we're doing uh, is then incorporating the mass balance approach so that because two production lines usually isn't feasible. So with, with MindSpider, uh, what we're saying is we're treating, uh, we're treating the, the materials the same as you would treat green energy on the electrical grid. So uh, what that means is if you just imagine very briefly green energy, if you purchase it tomorrow, You'll still get electricity coming into your house mixed with coal and nuclear power, but your money goes to the green energy company. And so essentially it's the same thing. If you create tokens that are based on the mass of production from responsible sources, so like one ton of gold is uh, equal to one ton of blockchain token, then you're controlling the production and you can certify you can certify material for the amount that's in the material, of the amount of material that you're processing. So as long as that material goes and travels along with the blockchain token, you will have an audit trail for an equivalent amount of material from a mine. So just imagine it this way. If, um, if a smelter here purchases a ton of metal from a responsible source and a ton from an unknown source, it'll have two tons of metal but only one ton of blockchain tokens. 
And then if their customer now wants two tons of responsible material, the smelter has to buy another ton from the responsible source. So then they've got three tons, and it doesn't matter which two of the three they give to their customer, the other two, uh, the, as long as the two tons of blockchain token go with it, they know the two tons have been purchased from the responsible source, and therefore the, all the money for those two is traceable back to the responsible source. Does that more or less make sense? Was, was that confusing to anyone? So anyway, what's interesting about this is that it does disrupt the, essentially the irresponsible actors. Um, but then the, you have a question of incentives. And this is another big question that we're dealing with, is how can you deal with the unintended consequences that come with responsible sourcing? And I'm talking more about this because it's sort of my area where I've been spending a lot of time. But essentially, when they started due diligence processes for conflict minerals, they said, okay, well, if you're sourcing from Central Africa, then you've got to do due diligence. Well, what happened? It costs money to do the due diligence. Who pays for that? Well, it's the mines, the most vulnerable people in the supply chain. It's kind of expensive for them. And so they have to pay to do the due diligence, and then uh, they get the world market price. They don't get any bonus for that. And then someone comes along and says, hey, sell to me. I'm a, uh, you know, we're an army. We need to fund our stuff. We'll give you a 30% money laundering bonus. So then you have a, a negative incentive for responsible, uh, responsible sourcing. The other thing is that the uh, responsible, uh, the people who want to be responsible, the Apples, the Googles, the Samsungs, they have an incentive to leave. And so as a result, it makes the problem worse because only the irresponsible actors stay. So... The way that we're doing this is we say, okay, well, as long as the mines can, di di uh, can tokenize their due diligence data, they're, they're gathering this data that costs them money, as long as they can tokenize it, it creates a new asset. That asset can be sold just like minerals can be sold, and so that provides them an income stream and a reason to get their due diligence data. And then at the end of the supply chain, the people that actually benefit from it, which are the Samsungs, the Googles, they have the reason to stay in the, uh, in the area now because they can prove that they're sourcing responsibly. And then at the end, the ones that benefit from the data are the ones who are able to actually pay for it. So this is ultimately the, the model. But I think we're going to see this with a lot of raw material sectors is that the incentives make a big difference. So the big challenges that we're going to see when we're dealing with any of these supply chain solutions uh, or any of the raw materials blockchain disruptive uh, projects at all are three, throughput, infrastructure, and participation. So throughput, because when you're dealing with raw materials, we're dealing with an industrial level scale of transactions. So you know, if we, even if we're talking about even one raw material, such as gold, you'll be dealing with large shipments from large mines and those are sort of easy but when you start to get into the smaller suppliers we're going to quickly outstrip the throughput that's capable from you know, something like an ethereum blockchain um, this may be a problem that solves itself but it's something to keep in mind before scaling your projects um, infrastructure is a big deal because a lot of raw materials are sourced from developing nations. So if you're in Central Africa, uh, it's going to be an issue trying to get a blockchain node working out there. I was talking recently with uh, people from the European Space Agency, which was a few months ago, and 
uh, a few of them had had a project of putting blockchain nodes, uh, I think it was Ethereum nodes, on satellites. The idea being that then you could communicate with, uh, with them using uh, devices on the ground in remote areas. And so there are projects for overcoming and leapfrogging this infrastructure problem, but it's still an open question as to what uh, infrastructure is going to win. And then, of course, participation. If you, if you have less educated people in a poorer area and you have incentives to source illegally or if you have incentives to jump the system, then you've got to think of how you can re restructure your incentive structure to make sure that it makes sense for them. So these are some opening thoughts to get you thinking about the application of the blockchain to different industries. Thank you very much for listening.